Permaculture Magazine North America is a proud partner with the Permaculture Podcast. As the first offshoot of the beloved magazine, Permaculture International, out of the UK, this new magazine offers a platform of regional solutions to global problems. Up your permaculture game with practical how-to and other inspiring stories, news articles, classifieds, and course listings. Visit permaculturemag.org today and start your subscription. Paper copy subscriptions receive the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture International as a free bonus. As a Permaculture Podcast listener, you can receive a 25% discount to a digital subscription to Permaculture Magazine North America by using the discount code PMNA25TPP. You'll find a link and that discount code in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Also before we begin, a quick update on the Return to the Gift fundraiser. So far, we've raised $530.33 towards the first goal of $1,000 by August 8th. If you'd like to learn more, including about the giveaways and promotions I'm including in this current campaign, you'll find a link in the show notes. If you'd like to contribute, go to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1721, Revising Permaculture, my second interview with David Holmgren. David joins me today to talk about the upcoming re-release of Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. Starting in that space, we also talk about the evolution of permaculture principles in general, whether we should talk about resilience as a standalone principle of permaculture, or simply a system characteristic and then move on to talk about the security that comes from growing our own food. That beginning of our conversation then leads us to talk about what David's been working on over the last few years, which is a focus on adapting where people are already living in low-density residential housing in cities, towns, and villages so that we can create resilient households as a way to rebuild community. That results in David's next book, which will be out later this year, and I plan to have an additional conversation with him about, called Retro Suburbia. From there, we begin to wrap up the conversation with some listener questions on novel ecosystems and whether or not he'll be coming to the United States with the release of his new book. And of course, we close with David's final thoughts. Let's go ahead and get into this conversation, and I'll join you again afterwards. Well, David, thank you for joining me again for another conversation after several years. I've been continuing to follow your work, and of course, I'm in touch with some of your colleagues down there in Australia, and so they update me from time to time in what's going on. And I think the most interesting thing that's come on my radar, which is what I wanted to talk with you some about today, was your new release or re-release of Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. But before we head in that direction... Since it has been a while, I was wondering if you might give us a bit of a personal update on what you've been working on in addition to that book. Yeah, I suppose there's a a lot of things, both revision and uh, moving forward with with new projects. One of the long-standing projects that's uh, been taking an increasing amount of my time over the last few years has been a book, Retro Suburbia which is really based on a positive view of the way suburbia can be uh, modified and changed, both in the built environment, the biological, you know, buildings and gardens, but also in the behavioural, how the way we live can take advantage of 
the opportunities that suburbia presents. And that's really building on a longer lineage of work that I've been doing for over a decade now, uh, of presenting those possibilities through a sort of what's really a permaculture soap opera, my Aussie Street story, which tracks a suburban street from the 1950s through the various decades and through the permaculture retrofit and on into the second Great Depression of the the 2020s. And that's been a, a sort of very engaging story that I've used to sort of uh, deal with those things over a long time and it's a sort of an integral part of that book project but that's been overlaid with various other things and of course on the the home front our property here at Maliadora continues to sort of occupy a lot of my time and focus although there are other people now engaged on the place here in a more long-term sense as well and continue to uh, have an, a strong interest in the whole area of novel ecosystems, though I haven't done so much writing on that subject, partly because I think the field has taken off with there are a lot of authors and uh, other people working on that field, so I have a sense that there's um, a lot of positive things happening there that... Uh, I don't so much feel like a, a dissident in the wilderness in those those ideas. And yes, the revised edition of uh, Principles and Pathways has um, been a little bit of, of, of taking me back to what exactly did I say and what exactly did I mean by those words uh, that were written really um, mostly around 2000. And with so much time since then and the continued influence that that book has had, I know so many people are using that as the groundwork for their permaculture practices because of the amount of information that you put into each of those 12 principles. As we have the conversations about what is permaculture design, what does it look like here in the States, we start with the prime directive that Bill gave us along with those ethics, which I guess the third ethic seems to be changing some now and has a little bit less to do with consumption population and more about how we would share and use resources. But from that, it descends into principles, strategies, and techniques of which your 12 principles are perhaps the most well-known and well-articulated. Yeah, I suppose it's been an evolutionary process in, in a way, because I've often pointed out that rather than principles being something that was set in stone at the beginning by myself and Mollison in, in Permaculture One, they were sort of like implied in the text and even in the designer's manual a decade later, there's really a whole lot of different sort of framings of, of that subject and it's only in the introduction to Permaculture in 1990 that Bill Molson and Rennie Slay sort of distilled what most people in those years were sort of teaching as permaculture principles. And my own framework of that was, uh, that came out a, a decade later, was really 
building on that lineage, but just having the perspective of someone who was there at the start. Obviously, I had my own particular take. And similarly, since then, I think a lot of people have found that that framework allows them to develop deeper understandings of of many different issues through that framework. But there's continued to be, I think, more evolution of that understanding since the book came out. And that's one of the shifts that I'm seeing from kind of this seat that I sit in within the permaculture community, talking with so many folks through the interviews and through email and phone calls, is that there is a way in which those principles can be applied to so much more than just the landscape. And we have things like Adam Brock's recent release where he's looking very much at social permaculture and looking at the development of economic systems and also through Toby Hemingway's book, The Permaculture City, and now kind of the bit of a framework that you've given us for retro suburbia of the way that we can apply permaculture to so much more than just those roots within the landscape which I think is something that for many people, we kind of get grounded in the land to begin with because of the common language that we can use to communicate. But then as we go down this road to understand how broad this system is as a system of design and the way that we can apply these principles in different ways, is seeing that kind of application of your work over the years something that has led to this latest revision? Or is it an extension and development of your thoughts further on the ways that you're personally applying these ideas? Well, yeah, I'd have to say the new edition is a revision rather than, you know, my current complete retake on the on the subject. I was reluctant to do that at this stage because I think it's, a, you know, like a whole new book <laughs> in a way from my <laughs> point of view. And I didn't have the, the focus there but I was very aware that there were aspects about the book when it came out that were less than clear that the experience of people applying these principles and teaching them has clarified many things and a whole lot of references and sources that exist now that didn't when the book was written that it we had, in a way, a responsibility to not just keep printing it as it was originally published. Um, in a way, that was one of the criticisms that there were around Bill Mollison's designer's manual, that, you know, great work that it was and is, you know, that there wasn't the revision and even correction of errors within the, the text. And I didn't want to <laughs> repeat that process I suppose and it has been a long time since 2002 so the revision is really trying to clarify the language and remove ambiguities and slightly better explain things and change and tweak some of the the diagrams the diagrams are all being redrawn but but also to consider exactly what is being illustrated in those a bit more carefully so that that's been our aim with this new revised edition i mean there are aspects that it hasn't changed for example one of the issues that's come up 
in the time since the book was written is about the issue of resilience as a principle or a system characteristic. And I see it really as a sustainable system characteristic that all 12 design principles contribute to. But when you actually look at the text, it's mentioned in relation to a couple of principles, but not as a sort of a theme right through all 12 principles. And so there's aspects like that that are evolutionary development of the way people are using the principles. And we, I actually included an essay on that in the principles teaching kit that we published, uh, whether resilience and reciprocity were permaculture principles or not. And I argued that both of them were really system characteristics that emerge from the application of, of principles. And, you know, but to sort of change the text in the sense of writing those current understandings into the book felt to me that's another book <laughs> and that it was better from a historical point of view in some ways to leave the ideas in principles and pathways as I saw them at the time, at, at the turn of the millennium, uh, with it just clarified and adjusted. In a way, the work that it would have been good to do if we'd known the book was going to have, you know, perhaps the impact that it had, uh, has had. I remember the discussion with Janet McKenzie, a professional editor, who was also a permaculturist and at the time, and she said her reaction to the manuscript was, this is a very, very important book. It needs another two years' work. And my partner, Sue Dennett, said, no, I think David needs a lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> instead <laughs> and and I said to Janet look all ideas are ideas in progress the world's changing incredibly fast I think I really need to get these ideas out there and in circulation and she said okay quick and dirty edit three months <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know so we were aware that you know, there were sort of um, those, you know, if you like, faults in the text. And uh, I think it was important to get the book out at that time. And there's a possibility that if we'd taken the longer road, <laughs> then it would have never happened. <laughs> it would have become one of those circular kind of processes where it's never quite good enough. So you go back and poke at it a little more and a little more and continue to refine it, but never get around to releasing it. Yeah, because there's, from my point of view as a as sort of a, a big picture thinker, I find it not possible to completely focus on the refining without the ideas shifting as well. So that's been quite a, a disciplined approach, both with myself and the colleagues I've worked on, is what are the things that we will actually change and the levels will change in the text? And we, we think the, the new edition is for people who might have said, would they recommend this book to this or that person? And, oh, it's, it's a difficult read. I think 
while it's still essentially the same book, I think uh, the new edition is an easier read and has some of the you know uh, perspectives clarified uh, slightly. So I think it's uh, it's an improvement in that sense, but people won't find it as a, a radically different book. We're not going to find a 13th principle or anything like that added to the material. That's really interesting because the number of people who sort of looked and used this framework and sort of tweaked and reinterpreted some of those have suggested that but mostly what's happened is people have found greater and greater depth within the same framework and i took very seriously the the challenge i had from colleagues who said you know where you know aren't resilience and reciprocity you know fundamental permaculture concepts and i said yes they definitely are so where do they lie and and it was interesting going through that process that could see where they were placed more often when people are sort of homing in on something that it's from my point of view it's almost always easy to see where that fits in one or other of those 12 principles and the application i think as you suggested the number of people who've taken the principles framework and see how it applies in their field of expertise often well out away from uh, the land and ecology base from which permaculture begins and that's one of the big i suppose aspects of that spread of, of the application of, of permaculture which is i think very positive but sometimes I get nervous about people not having that base understanding in ecology and working with nature to provide our basic needs because that is always the anchor to which we come back to sort of understand the veracity of ecological principles must be with ecology and nature itself. And I've been having some parallel conversations about the land base as a space to start from with Matthew Stevens from Chicago and then Jason Gadeski, who's out of Pittsburgh, because of in the conversations with Matt about what we can learn from the landscape and doing that work and getting to apply all of these ideas and principles in that space, because we can in some ways self-limit the interactions by working on a very small area and then kind of grow it larger and larger. But then in my conversations with Jason about the security that working with the land and growing food gives us in order to work in these other realms, that if we can feed ourselves, that that's something that's hard to take away from us and provides a lot of security and, to use that term, resilience in our work moving forward, that we can always be safe and secure knowing that we can eat and build everything else on top of that. Yeah, I, th I think that's a very important aspect, especially in terms of the deep understanding of, of politics, going back to the English notion of the yeoman, the, the free farmer, who could articulate into a public space from a position of being able to feed themselves. <laughs> Whereas the disenfranchised workers gathering together to try and get strength to 
articulate into the the public space their their rights and demands when only their thing they could offer into the system was their labor that they didn't have the autonomy to say well we stand here on some base of autonomy and to speak to power from that position is a very different sort of uh, base now obviously anything in the physical world can be taken away from us but even if we think of the skill and ability to produce food to interact with nature to feel comfortable in our physical environment that we can survive in it provides a very different base from which to engage in society on a, a larger scale and I think it's only the reliable supply of basic needs that has allowed people to believe they can exercise autonomy and interact with the, the wider world and deal with things like injustice and redesigning society without having those things in order, whereas permaculture does come back to what are these basic things, let's get the basic things right and use that as a, a building block outwards. And, of course, what that process brings us face-to-face uh, -face with is the degree of um, the total dependence of, of modern people almost for the air we breathe you know, on systems of finance and processes of technology that we don't understand. And so many people find the process of becoming more self-reliant and applying permaculture to that provision of basic needs of the self and the household as an enormously empowering thing because it does rebuild, even if it's only relatively small, some of those innate capacities that all of our ancestors have had through the generations. That reliance on the industrial systems, there was a food security workshop that my teaching partner and I put together one day, and we were asking folks where they bought their food from. And we were getting answers like through community-supported agriculture, their local farmer's market, their natural food store. And then at the end, it was the questions like, no one had mentioned their regular grocery store. And then asking them, it's like, okay, how many people go to the grocery store and purchase food there as opposed to these other systems that are in relationship with individuals. And everybody raised their hand that they're still shopping there. And as we broke it down, around 90% of their calories, just as a quick calculation we figured, were still coming from that very standard industrialized system that requires jobs, trucks, fuel systems, economic extraction, and everything else just to exist day to day. It's a fine balance between the whole thing of feeling empowered and motivated by the small changes and positive steps that we or other people have made, whether we look at it in ourselves or looking at the changes around us in society in positive directions, and being deluded <laughs> into you know, thinking we've achieved some fundamental you know, structural change. And because if there is too hard an analysis for most people, it leads to a, a disempowerment that there is no point. There is this 
futility and it's all too difficult, too difficult for me and too difficult for society type of idea. But yes, there does need to be that dose of reality that um, keeps things in perspective and also is the encouragement to work on, on the things that matter. And, you know, as any peasant village person would know, the staple foods that sustain them are things that, that matter. So that, that ability to sort of see the hierarchies of vulnerabilities and hierarchies of opportunities is uh, an important part, I suppose, of a, a permaculture self-audit and collective audit process. Do these kinds of thoughts enter into the work on retro-suburbia? Are you examining those kinds of systems in that book? Yes, we're very much looking at how you adapt from where people already are, which in Australia and in the United States and many other affluent countries, most people are living in or at least grew up in low-density residential houses in cities, towns and villages. Whether it's, you know, I mean, often people think of suburbia as being only in big cities, especially in Australia where we have a few big capital cities and then a lot of people in those areas then think then there's the countryside, <laughs> you know. But in fact, most Australians live in some version of that, whether it's a, a capital city or, or not, of low-density housing. And a lot of that owned by people but also rental, and more so it's where most children are raised because although many people live in apartments, not so many children are raised in those environments uh, still. So those landscapes and infrastructure of all that built world will still be there in the near future when we are facing this ongoing unfolding crisis of climate, energy and economics, amongst other things. So we'll be dealing with what we already have. And so in a, in a sense, we have to work from that. But the options for adaptive behaviour within that environment are huge. And the ability to produce some of a household's food, especially perishable fruit, vegetables and small livestock products, which are the sort of more expensive parts of a, a food supply chain, if not the major calories, is this huge opportunity to effectively re-ruralise suburbia and in the process be the engine of a bottom-up economic revival because we know that agricultural development is still really the basis of any real economy as opposed to the fantasy economy that we mostly have at the moment with uh, financialised services and luxury and discretionary expenditure. We know that those sorts of things, when you get major economic contraction, they just disappear, they volatilise, they, they just don't exist. But the basic economy of food provision, shelter, those sorts of things continue. And in the case of shelter, 
in a lot of ways in Australia and other affluent countries, we actually already have enough buildings. <laughs> we don't need to build huge number of more houses, but we need to retrofit what already exists. And that evidence for an excess of building stock is being sort of slow to emerge. It's mostly, some of it results from the um, excessive property bubble dynamics of, you know, houses that are not being even rented out and holiday homes of affluent people that are sitting empty and many other things. But it's also because of the fact that we have these very large houses and often few people living in them and even spending even fewer hours in them. So what that means is when people face economic contraction, lose jobs or are in some ways harder up, what we know happens is household size increases. And I, my understanding there's already signs that that's underway and more people live together because it's more efficient and it's more secure. It's, there's so many benefits. It's the obvious adaption that people can and will do. But because the building stock is so underused at the moment in terms of hours of occupancy and uh, the, uh, the number of people there are relative to the amount of space, there's huge opportunities for us to make that behavioural adaption that we couldn't say was available to people in previous generations. So, for example, in Australia in the Great Depression in the 1930s, a terrace house that today might have a couple living in it and spending almost no time there. Back in the 1930s, there were sort of eight people living in that house. So it was a little bit harder to say, let's have 16 people living in that house. Whereas to go from two people currently living in it to four or six or eight creates huge opportunities for household resilience. Now, whether that household is a family or some, you know, an extended family or a shared house, there are many, many different forms of household that will emerge. But we see those huge opportunities for adaptive uh, change. With that, something I was wondering, because earlier today, I recorded an interview with Maikwe Ludwig, who just released a book together, Resilient, which is talking about building community and in particular, intentional communities. And I was wondering, is there an intentional community movement in Australia? Yes, very much. That's uh, paralleled that in the United States and other affluent countries over the last 30 40 years and I've been very much involved and an observer of that over that time. I suppose about 20 years ago, I came to the conclusion that while the intentional communities movement had, you know, lots of ups and downs and, um, you know, uh, sort of different assessments could be made of its success and otherwise, the timeline for the idea of designed intentional communities being rolled out, if you like, and large numbers of people actually living in these was not there. And that the opportunities for new greenfield site development 
of eco-villages and intentional communities would actually decline in the future, not expand. But a lot of the learnings from those movements could be applied back into how people live in the existing unintentional communities, that new communities that will emerge in suburbia through organic processes. But really, retro-suburbia as a strategy is going beyond that and saying that rather than unintentional communities emerging primarily from people getting together in networks, in neighbourhoods, the building block of that is solid, resilient households. And this is something that is often a little bit missed from some of the community-based activism that I see. And I think it's a little bit a sort of a political, philosophical one that somehow the idea of the household is a domain of the libertarian right, proposing an autonomy and independence from and rejection of society, whereas the more communitarian ideas sort of sort of come from the left and are often more closely associated with environmentalism. Whereas I see these things as building blocks that the household is the most fundamental collective unit in society and the centre of organisation of the, the basics of food production, of raising children. And then, obviously, local community and neighbourhood is the next level up. And that if we put all our eggs in the basket of trying to develop all the community connection, but our households are very fragile and weak, then we don't have that solid foundation to build on. So I, I think the focus on the household as a, a building block towards rebuilding community is a sound one. And it obviously is one that connects with if you like, more conservative, conventional views. But even re, reframing, like, what is a household and what is the household economy, it's something that people have almost forgotten about as free-floating individuals dependent on the technosphere. The idea that the household is where we need economies of scale, that ironically... All of our industrial systems are too big to be sustainable, but our households are too small to be sustainable. And that unsustainability within the household comes from those details that you laid out, the small number of people who are living in a space, the amount of space that they're taking up, the amount of time that they're not spending there, and then all the personal resources that go into the use and maintenance of this site without actually really inhabiting it. Yeah, and there's, if we think of the household as an economy and productive activities that are not in the monetary economy, but they're in the household and community, non-monetary economies of reciprocity, gift and love are the, the mediators of that exchange, whether it's just cooking a meal, you know, for five people is way more efficient than cooking it for one. And then there are so many skills that are needed in a household, especially 
a household that has some access to adjacent land, like in suburbia, to be able to grow food and raise animals and work on fixing the bicycle or the car and, you know, so many things that even at that scale need to be done, it's best distributed through a range of people with different skills and and temperaments and, and abilities. And that's, of course, also the primary nursery where children learn all of these possibilities without the intervention of what's really the contamination of monetary values that so many of basic needs and basic abilities and and relationships can be developed at that level and then that spills over into the community neighborhood domain to provide a lot of the basic needs so that the monetary economy is only needed for the things that we can't provide at those levels or that it's very difficult to do so. And, you know, that runs right through to thinking about, you know, food production, what are the most logical things to to sort of grow at the home scale, but also what are the most logical things to do for yourself versus, you know, buy in the monetary economy. And then do you see that sustainable, secure household being part of a larger network within the community? So not only are we using the skills within our household, but also relying on our neighbours as well? Yeah, and Retro Suburbia includes both strategies to build that informally with whoever's next door and across the street, but also some very deliberate strategies by which people might buy adjacent houses or someone become the neighbourhood landlord because they do have capital and they buy the house next door and then get the right sort of tenants in. And similarly, tenants looking for the landlord, the person who has the like values. So we sort of, to the extent that we have the capacity, we create those things deliberately. And to the extent we can just respond to the situations we're in and build those relationships across the back fence and within the street. So Retro Suburbia is, is looking at all of those strategies and how they can work in, in real time to build that resilience. I'm really glad to hear that you're writing this book because it sounds like a perfect next step to build on your earlier work of permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, that you gave us a toolkit in that book on how to apply these ideas and to begin thinking and using permaculture from the inside out as practitioners and designers who are applying these ideas to what it is that we do naturally, whether we're an accountant or a doctor or a gardener or anywhere in between. And now you're giving us a model and a toolkit that we can apply within our household and among our families and friends to build something that's really secure and moves that idea of permaculture as both permanent agriculture and permanent culture forward. It's interesting the similarities and differences between the book embedded right through our sort of mostly subtle references to, because the book is written as a pattern language referencing Christopher Alexander, uh, but the patterns illustrate different permaculture principles throughout. But it's it's much more... um, grounded and focused in addressing, um, if you like, uh, a more 
mainstream audience and people actually wanting to to do something at the practical level rather than the book of theory that that some people would naturally see principles and pathways as as being so they're quite different writing styles and it's it's something of the the evolution of uh, of my own work of coming round full circle in a way to where permaculture began in terms of a populist movement that Mollison launched in the in the late seventies and early eighties. It was actually in suburbia in Australia where you know that was initially applied, and I think there's all sorts of historical reasons why that didn't continue. There weren't so much to do with the, the failings of the the way permaculture was presented or articulated, but just the larger economic and um, political changes in society in the 80s that happened. But, yeah, in a way, permaculture is coming back to reclaim its, its beginnings in suburbia. And as we study history, in some ways, we come full circle, eh? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's um, you know quite an element of that of revisiting and seeing understanding at a deeper level why something a great idea may have not worked for some particular reasons or or context but it still doesn't mean that that wasn't you know a good idea and i think also the the application of permaculture through the back to the land movement over many cycles has obviously led to a lot of people within and beyond permaculture acknowledging the importance of community and the importance of uh, scale in community. And obviously Toby Himmelay's work, not just his last book, but also his own personal evolution of that focus on, on permaculture being back in community versus the self-reliant farm. And in a way, I'm sort of bringing those two ideas together and saying, you know, a suburban block is, when really cranking, a self-reliant farm, but nested in a vibrant community of scale that suburbia potentially represents. All those houses, all those green lawns, and all the people who could be there working both individually and together to create a resilient, vibrant future. Yeah, that that scale and uh, density is, I believe, a sweet point between the density of cities, which, as fantastic as they are, they require such radical restructuring to be sustainable in a low-energy future. And it's very difficult for people to get very far with that process until the whole of society agrees that that's necessary. Whereas out in the the countryside, there's the autonomy to get started, but there's not the nested scale to create a lot of the possibilities. And I think suburbia is not so much by design, but by accident, is that sweet point where a lot of those things can come together. And uh, it's, yeah, an area where a, a lot of people are already making making those moves in in that direction.
And I really appreciate what you shared with us today. And I'm looking forward to being able to sit down with a copy of Retro Suburbia and kind of make some notes and cross compare to my own permaculture work and that that I've seen among others. But before we have that conversation in a future interview, I did have some questions from listeners that they wanted me to ask you while I had you on the line this time. The one you kind of touched on earlier was about novel ecosystems, and you mentioned that there are other people who are writing about this and talking about it, so I was wondering if you might mention a few of those resources that folks could look for to find out more about this idea. Yes, well, I think Taurarian's book Beyond the War on Invasive Species is a an excellent sort of exploration of both her own personal journey and also a a larger analysis of both the dysfunction that's captured the field of ecological restoration in dependence on herbicides, but also the ways in which permaculture thinking can lead us to better ways of working with naturalised vegetation. Um, Scientific journalist Fred Pierce, I can't think off the top of my head, uh, his book on, on the subject is also a very good one, questioning a lot of the uh, orthodoxy of the field of invasive species science about whether naturalisation actually has led to the extinctions and, and losses of species that are sort of routinely claimed in that field. And then the the large text, more at a sort of scientific papers level, uh, which is called Novel Ecosystems. I can't remember the, the subtitle of that. And that's a whole series of academic ecologists who've um, pulled together a lot of the initial scientific focus on this field without sort of strongly challenging the orthodoxy around invasive species but sort of acknowledging at various levels that it's important to have a a much better understanding of these emergent recombinations of nature that's happening and that these are not just chaotic expressions of disorder but are actually nature building new ecosystems and that ecosystem evolution is in fact a much more rapid process than was previously thought. So that those are the ones that I think have been uh, sort of quite significant. But over the years, there's been articles in the um, Permaculture Activist, now the Permaculture Design Magazine, that's referenced various scientific work in this area. At a local level, we've had a lot better follow-up in terms of PhD research on willows that grow along a lot of our streams in southeastern Australia and have been subject of very large-scale willow removal programs. We now have something like six PhDs supervised by a colleague of mine, Michael Wilson, who did his PhD on willow ecology right here in Hepburn Springs in the area that we've been monitoring and managing for the last 25 years that we call the Spring Creek Community Forest. And his PhD in the late 90s was on that willow ecology. And there's a connection between his sort of work as a quiet scientist gradually sort of 
building up this understanding and a much more prominent radical Australian, Peter Andrews, uh, who developed the um, concept of natural sequence farming, which is really a water management system of how to manage water courses and allow them to redevelop a natural structure that assists in flooding uh, floodplain landscapes and re rehydrating the landscape, which a lot of hydrologists and catchment scientists are now acknowledging is is much much more sensible approach than the ideas where we've treated streams as drainages, drainage systems, and that acknowledgement that landscapes that naturally flood do actually need to be flooded is actually a, a good part of what's necessary. And uh, so Peter Andrews' work was quite controversial, partly because he made actually use of species like willows, non-native species, with partly engineered structures to block up creeks and, and create flooding, if you like, just putting it crudely. And some of his work has, has now been approved by government authorities and monitored and uh, being measured. And Michael Wilson's work at Maloon Creek Farms near Canberra in Australia has been central to that documentation, which is partly understanding those the value of those types of earthworks done to do that, but also the role of the naturalising vegetation, including willows. So I think there are both at the sort of general overview level and at the more detailed research level, there's a, a lot of work starting to to come together to sort of reevaluate uh, this field. And you've given quite a few resources for myself and others to dig into, and also reminds me that I've interviewed Ms. Orion several years ago when her book was first released, so I'll have to dig that out of the archives and re-release it for folks who are interested in that work. Yeah, I thought it was a, a sort of a, a great um, introduction to the field, and I was yeah, very happy to write the forward to it. And it's, yeah, it's great to see these ideas getting out there because it was something that I had the beginnings of a manuscript in the uh, in the 90s that I set aside to um, to focus on principles and pathways instead. It is interesting to see the way that ideas develop in parallel as I'm working on a on a book on personal transformation and the application of permaculture to things like conflict, transformation and peace work and communities. And then as Adam Brock's book was just released, there are so many places where there's overlap between the two of us. That it'll be interesting to suss out the places where I can take my own manuscript in a different direction so that they're unique, useful works. Yeah, and I think there's definitely a, a lot happening with that application of, of permaculture in the, in the social dimension, which I sort of dabble into the edges of in, in retro suburbia, but it's a, it's a sort of a whole field in it itself and uh, a one that's um, expanding. One quick question from my friend Blake Kirby at Daddy Kirby's Farm in Texas. He's wondering when you're going to come visit his farm. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose since I wrote the uh, essay why I am not flying much, <laughs> I have pretty much been 
avoiding air travel and maintaining, I suppose, the view that I would both focus on the local but also maintain the connection to the global through the amazing opportunities that exist like the ones we're using now. And that has been sometimes an issue of frustration, but it also builds on a a much longer lineage where I've always only gone long distances for long periods. So my only trip to the US was for a period of, of months. And that idea of not going somewhere without connecting into the larger surrounding community and bioregion as part of a larger immersion is, I think, a good one, even though there's, of course, fantastic opportunities to maybe contribute usefully as many permaculture teachers and communicators have done, designers, by sort of dropping into a place and and then going on. But uh, I can't see myself in the near future coming to Texas, although I'm sure I could learn lots and um, maybe contribute a bit. (laughs) Well, thank you for that, because it was one of the things more broadly that I was wondering is if with the release of Retro Suburbia, you might do some kind of a world book tour. But as someone who also made the decision several years ago to not fly unless it was some kind of a very particular emergency, but otherwise to either stay local or take more sustainable forms of transportation, I can understand that. And I appreciate, though, that you would make the time for conversations like this. Yeah, the other thing I'd mentioned about the Retro Suburbia strategy is the book is actually written for a local audience rather than a global audience. It's written in a context of Melbourne and the regional towns in Victoria and spreading out sort of across southern Australia a bit. But it's written in that context quite deliberately because that is my sort of community and where I can be specific about the solutions but I know the book you know has this much wider application but even in the way we're planning the promotion of the book instead of just assuming oh we'll do around Australia speaking to her and speak to the same sorts of people that I would talk to normally we're actually going to concentrate on having local almost town meeting type presentations, trying to get to the next cohort of people beyond those already interested in things like permaculture and to get a bit of a critical mass in the city of Melbourne and its suburbs of three and a half million people and the regional towns under the idea that a critical mass in one place actually provides some sort of a tipping point. And then because the world is so totally globally connected, it's very, very easy. If something of interest really starts to happen in one place, people who are wired and connected into that sort of subject area go, look at what's happening over there. You know, why can't we do that here? (laughs) So I think it's actually, you know, a strategy of that local global that I think has a lot more potency than let's spread the jam very thinly over the the whole piece of toast. 
And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how that goes. But one of the possibilities, of course, is that a permaculture colleague writes the, um, you know, the East Coast of the United States edition of Retro Suburbia and reframes all of my local examples and, you know, changes the, the context, you know, because I think that's the possibility if we get that success at that next level, then there is obviously reframing a message for more local audiences is a, is a great idea. There's so much that emerges as you say that and thinking about the global application of the book and then also the, the ways that that could be localized. But I've already had you here for quite some time. As we draw this conversation to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Well, I think we live in extraordinary times at the moment. The upheavals in the world are really on a, a big historic scale. History is being made on a day-to-day basis. It's very hard to see exactly what that is, and, uh, and there's so much noise that confuses that. But I think it's a, it's a time of opportunity to make decisions and to make connections because I think the opportunities are both opening up but others are closing very rapidly and clearly there's some sort of very bad evidence and and sort of terrible things in the world but I think that point of change is one that cascades right down to our individual lives and even though there's a tendency to see this is the the pivotal moment in history you know between the the past and the and the future as every present moment is we really do have a lot of opportunities to act now that may not be there in the future so thinking about what's important and getting those things in place, I think is you know something that we all need to be doing, building on the resources that we have available and thinking creatively about how we work from where we are, both in in a sense of geography and community, but also in a in a conceptual and a, and a practical sense of dealing with where we are rather than deferring to oh, when we have the right piece of land or when we have the necessary savings or this deferring that is so so common, I think there's, in a lot of cases, you know, this is definitely a time for putting plans into action. Well, thank you for that, for this conversation and for joining me today, David. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, very uh, much appreciate the work you're doing with the uh, Permaculture Podcast. And that was David Holmgren. You can find out more about him and his work at his website, holmgren.com.au, and by the link in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find a resource list that includes information about all of the novel ecosystem references that David made, including to Fred Pierce's The New Wild, Dow Orion's Beyond the World Invasive Species, and novel ecosystems intervening in the new ecological world order. I also want to let you know that that revised edition of Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability 
is currently at the printers, and we should be able to get copies of that by about mid-September or so. I'll give you an update in a future episode when those are available. I'm certainly interested to get my hands on a copy so that I can compare it to the edition that has been my go-to text on permaculture for so long, and I'm interested in seeing the changes that have been made. I'm also interested in seeing Retro Suburbia when that becomes available because of my personal interest in what we can do to develop truly sustainable systems where we're at. I think back to the interviews that I had with Bob Tice, where he encouraged us to take whatever space we're in and to rehab it in a way that makes it more sustainable and regenerative. Houses and buildings that already exist, rather than going out and inflicting ourselves on a piece of land that doesn't need us. But wherever you are, whatever your interest or focus is in permaculture, I definitely think you should have a copy of David Holmgren's Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. It really is a fantastic book that the more that I spend time with, the more that I come to understand and learn from it. In many ways, each of those principles remind me of a prayer or a Zen koan that we might reflect on and as we do, take ever deeper meaning. What are your thoughts after listening to this interview? As always, you can leave a comment or get in touch with me. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, 717-827-6266, or by dropping something in the post, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is with Mayukwe Ludwig about her book, Together Resilient, that'll be out on August 7th for Patreon supporters and with its global release on August 10th. So until then, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.